Welcome to episode 114, when it's not autism or ADHD, sensory processing disorder is common ground, featuring Dr. Shiro Pereira Torquato. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Uh, today, I am honored to be joined by a colleague of mine, Dr. Shiro Pereira Torquato. She is a licensed clinical psychologist that practices in Simi Valley in California, and she's also a dear colleague of mine. Um, she is going to be joining us today to talk about sensory processing disorders. Um, Shiro, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. So why don't you take a moment to tell us a little bit more about you and about your background and your specialization in working with sensory processing disorders? Okay, well, um, I started uh, studying psychology uh, in, in undergrad and then went on and got two different master's degrees. So my first master's uh, was in psychology, but there was an emphasis in applied behavior analysis. So I had an opportunity to work with kids with developmental disabilities and autism and things like that. Um, and then my second master's was in clinical psychology. And then I got my doctorate um, at Auburn University uh, in, um, in uh, psychology as well, and came back to California, and then got licensed back in 1996. So I opened up my private practice in 1999. And since then, I've been primarily doing um, psychological evaluations. And I also do educational consultations. So I get referrals from parents, um, and many of them come from teachers and other therapists, colleagues, uh, to kind of do a good, get get a better idea of what's going on with their child. Are they do they have a learning disability? Do they have ADHD? Uh, what's causing their anxiety? Um, and then help them kind of navigate both the school as well as resources in the community to get their child help. And um, it's very rewarding. I've been doing this now for little over 21 years and to get feedback from parents about how the work that I do with their child and the guidance that I give the parents on how to really help their child, because that's really what they want to do, is they want their child to be happy. They want their child to be successful in school. Um, and it works when they know, when parents know what their child needs, 99.9% .9 of them follow through and get their child the help they need. And uh, then they see the positive results. Um, I also help them navigate the school system special ed process. And that's been um, very fulfilling when I find out, when I identify a child with a learning disability, for example, and they need special education, and then they'll go to the school, this parent goes to the school, and they get that help. And then the child is no longer hating to go to school because it's so hard for them because they're actually getting the support that they need. Um, so those are the, the kind of the two prongs um, of my practice. And uh, what I found is that many of the children that I see when they're older in elementary school, middle school, and I've been seeing a lot of high school students lately. It's interesting. Um, I tend to really try and get a lot of developmental history because oftentimes a lot of the things, whether it's a learning problem or attention problem or social, emotional, mental health issues, a lot of them start very, very early on. Um, and so that's how I kind of got interested in this whole other aspect of sensory processing. Um, I'd say early in my career, I had a student, she was about 12 years old, and the mom brought her to me. She had severe anxiety, frequent tantrums. And when I did the developmental history, the mom shared with me that this is a child who couldn't wear socks, she would scream anytime they tried to put shoes on her. She was always uncomfortable. Even as a baby, she cried constantly. And a lot of the behaviors that the, the history and the behaviors the parent was describing to me sounded like what's known as tactile defensiveness. The, when certain things touch your skin, whether they're tags or seams and socks, it's uncomfortable for the child. And so my, in my graduate training, I learned, okay, People with autism have tactile defensiveness, so this child must be autistic. But I assessed every aspect I could think of related to autism, um, social problems, uh, communication problems. This child had none. So I had to come to the conclusion, there's something else going on with this child that is not autism. And that's when I kind of dug up and found out and learned more about sensory processing disorders. Got it. So for you, it was really a case that made you turn into a detective to figure out what was really going on, because a lot of the pieces you were seeing didn't fit with more mainstream diagnoses. Exactly. 
So why don't we start there? Why don't we start with kind of a discussion of even what a sensory processing disorder is and, um, and, and what we as clinicians need to know fundamentally about how often they occur, um, in what populations, what we need to be looking for. Sure. Okay. So as you said, I started digging. I just discovered this and thought, okay, this doesn't fit. This is not consistent with the training. So I read several books. I went to multiple continuing education workshops, and I discovered that this condition, which was initially coined as a sensory integration dysfunction, that's what the the early term was back in the 1960s. It was identified by um, an occupational therapist and developmental psychologist. She was trained in both areas. Her name was Jean Ayers, A-Y-E-R-S. And she identified this, this condition that is brain-based, basically. It has to do with brain development. And um, let me kind of give the explanation that I typically share with parents because it kind of captures what this, this whole condition is. Um, And basically what it is, is that between birth and age five, uh, our brains are making all these neural connections, right? It's developing and things are, we're learning things and all all these connections are being made. And for some reason, the areas that process information, those connections are not made properly. And so I describe it to parents as it's almost like all the windows are constantly open. So the child hears and sees and smells and tastes things at an amplified level because there are no filters, because the windows are constantly open. The proper brain connections, when they're made, allow us to be able to filter out. Like, for example, if a fire truck goes by the building, we can hear it, but it's not going to startle us because it's so loud, because our brain can filter that out. With these kids, they can't filter out. Then you have other other children who um, are called sensory seekers, where they're getting they're not getting enough information because the windows are closed a lot of the time, and so they engage in behaviors to try and get more input to their bodies. So they're very hyper. They're grabbing things. They're touching things. They're loud, and they look very ADHD a lot of times. Um, so that's kind of part of what it is, and I'll get into unless you have another question kind of where this comes from and, and more details of, of what it's about. Well, I appreciate what you were just saying about breaking down this idea of, you know, what is tactile defensiveness? And then, you know, what happens if that occurs in the absence of these other symptoms? And then how is that contrasted? So you have these kids who are too, I won't say too sensitive, but are extremely sensitive. And then you have children who are seeking, like you said, sensory seekers that are seeking more um, stimulation and kind of splitting them into those two camps. I can see how from a clinical standpoint, that could get muddy very quickly. And as you just alluded to, that the children who are sensory seekers could very quickly be labeled as having an attention deficit disorder when actually it's sensory processing. So um, I'm just going to leave it at that. Please keep going. Tell us tell us more about this and kind of break down those camps and, and what we need to know. One of the questions parents often ask me, and I'm sure clinicians think the same thing, is where does this come from? What causes this? You know, we're always looking for a reason or a cause, especially if parents are wondering, did I do something wrong? Was, you know, did I do something during the pregnancy? Did I do something when my child was young? And it turns out that actually sensory processing disorders, which is the more common term that we use now, as I said, back in the 60s, um, Jane Ayers identified sensory integration dysfunction. We now call it sensory processing disorders. A lot of times it's hereditary. I've worked with a number of parents that when I start talking about their child's sensitivity to noise or, or different things like that, and they're sharing this with me, one parent usually says, I was like that. Or, you know, my wife was like, is like that. Um, and so there is a hereditary component. Um, the other thing that I've kind of discovered, and I'm not familiar if there's any literature, but I'm sure a lot of the clinicians listening to this podcast would agree, is trauma can bring this on. As we know, trauma in early, early childhood definitely affects brain development. It affects emotional regulation. It affects different areas of the brain having to do with how we process information and we respond to the environment. I found an interesting pattern that children, young children who experience medical trauma. And what I mean by medical trauma is like, for example, 
uh, they cut themselves and they, you know, have to be taken to the emergency room to get stitches or they break an arm. And the pain of the medical experience, as well as being held down, um, you know, being scared, maybe their parent is not in the room with them, uh, and they experience pain. They may have to have an IV, they may have to get shots. All of that is very unusual for a two, three, four-year-old child to experience. Um, and that's, again, going to affect their brain development and how they process information from the, from the outside world. Um, I knew of one child I worked with who was developing, according to the parents, very, very typically until about age two, where he had to have um, adenoid and tonsil surgery. Um, and for whatever reason, they gave him an anesthesia and he woke up in the middle of the surgery. Yeah. And it took five nurses to hold him down so the anesthesiologist could give him another injection to put him back into general anesthesia. That trauma from that time forward, he was a different child. And he did end up manifesting some of these sensory processing problems. But oftentimes the origin of this is completely unknown. It is just, there's so much um, variation in brain development that some people, it develops pretty typically and others in this sense, in terms of processing information from the outside world doesn't, um, doesn't develop efficiently. So when we're looking at sensory processing disorder, and then, you know, compared to contrasted with uh, sensory processing sensitivity, so both having that potential hereditary base, knowing that at least based on what I've seen, anywhere from 15 to 20, 25% of the population tends to just simply be more sensitive. We have more mirror neurons, things like that. How have, have you seen any research about that? Or have you seen in your own practice that it is these kids who were automatically HSPs, highly sensitive people that are more likely to develop sensory processing disorders in the perfect storm with trauma? Or like, how, how have you seen that manifest? Or are they unrelated? Um, I think there is a relationship because it is, you know, it, it is a brain base, brain, brain body interaction, you know, um, but it's interesting because I think um, I'm not as familiar with the um, sensitive person, you know, uh, as, as you are, um, but it seems like with that, there are, it's, it's more of an awareness, a heightened awareness of, of things, um, both internally and externally, where some of these children they lack that awareness and because they get so overstimulated. Um, for example, uh, I see it and I'm kind of jumping around, but to answer your question is I find that a number of kids that I work with elementary age kids um, have difficulties with bladder control. And part of it is not so much that they were not potty trained, but they wait till the very last minute and then they can't make it to bathroom. And oftentimes, even when the parent says, do you need to go to the bathroom? The child says no, until literally their bladder is completely full. And I explain that because they're not, a, their body is not taking in the cues and giving them the feedback that, you know, I need to go to the bathroom or I'm injured and I'm bleeding and I hurt and responded to that. So they almost, it's, it's a lack of that awareness that causes the problems rather than I think the sensitivity is there's more awareness is my understanding. Okay, that's actually really interesting. Um, so when we're looking at sensory processing disorders, you just gave me a couple of examples. But so what are some of the things that come along with that? You know, you just mentioned about, um, it sounds like lack of um, acknowledgement or awareness of physical cues like pain, discomfort, if you need to go to the bathroom, what are some other kind of hallmarks that um, that you see that that um, let you know in your role, like, oh, I need to investigate this a little bit more. Right. Let me go through the sensory systems. And we have the five different systems that are most commonly identified. And then within that, I can give examples. Um, Perfect. And that'll make a Thank little you. bit more sense. Okay. So um, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, because it doesn't look the same in every child, it's often hard, one, to identify, and then two, to be able to treat properly. Um, and that's how oftentimes as I will get into this conversation more is um, these kids get misdiagnosed by clinicians, by pediatricians, by neurologists. Um, so let me talk about the different systems. Uh, as I said earlier, some children can be highly sensitive or overreactive to certain things. And then others can be 
underreactive to where they're looking for the input and the behavior looks very different. So as I said, we have five different domains of the sensory systems. One is auditory or hearing. And these are children who um, tend to cover their ears in loud situations. Um, an example is often the parent family could never go to a movie because it was too loud for the child. They'd be covering their ears. Uh, fireworks frighten them. Um, if somebody is talking loudly, they misperceive that they're being yelled at because the volume is too loud for them. It, it's, um, they also get easily distracted in busy and noisy situations. Uh, it's, again, they can't filter, so everything is coming in. Now, you also have children who are the under-responders that talk really loud. And I've had many of them in my office where the parent is like, you know, quiet down, quiet down, and they'll do it for about 10 seconds. And then they start talking really loud again because they literally cannot process how loud they're, they're speaking. Their brain is not giving them the, the correct input. Um, these kids also um, will sometimes make annoying noises um, and bother other kids in school. They tend to be disruptive because of their, their noise making or they're, you know, trying to get, get that input or they're es escaping out of the classroom when it's too noisy for them. So depending on whether they're more defensive or seekers. Tactile is the other one. And this is the sensory, uh, the tactile defensiveness I mentioned earlier that's very common with children who have classic autism. Um, they can't tolerate seams and socks. They don't like to be touched. Uh, they hate having their hands dirty. I mean, these are the kids that in preschool or kindergarten when they were finger painting, they couldn't tolerate finger painting. Um, sometimes, you know, tags and clothes is a big thing. Uh, these children oftentimes refuse to wear certain clothes like jeans. They complain that they're itchy or they're uncomfortable. Um, I've had children that their parents have to buy sweatpants. That's all they wear, children I've worked with. Um, and they have to be washed like eight times so they're soft enough for the child to feel comfortable in it. Um, another thing is like going to the beach or even walking on grass. Some children that feeling on their feet is, is uh, very aversive. And how it works and related to, to the brain processing is their brain is not processing the information correctly. So it's very difficult for them to discern, is this hurting me or does this feel good? And that's why they either avoid it or in the case of the children who seek it, they want things really tight. They want tight clothing, their shoes tied really tight. Uh, I had a little girl I worked with who constantly had to wear a belt, regardless of what clothes she was wearing, because she liked the belt really tight around her torso, because that deep pressure gave them the feedback that this is comfortable. Um, these are also the kids that chew on their clothes, <laughs> it makes the parents crazy. Um, they will also uh, tend to get in trouble, especially like in preschool or kindergarten, because they love to give bear hugs. So they'll go over to another child and grab them really tight and it appears to be aggressive when in fact they're not aggressive, but they want that deep pressure feedback that's tactile. So those are two of the systems, auditory and tactile. Another one is vestibular, um, V-E-S-T-I-B-U-L-A-R, vestibular. And it means your body in space. So it has to do with balance it has to do, these are kids who are fear, uh, afraid of heights. Um, they have difficulty catching balls. They, When they walk, they tend to walk into people if they're walking next to them because they really have a difficult time uh, determining their body in space and controlling their body in space because they're not getting that feedback from their body and gravity and all that working together. Um, another one is proprioceptive. I'll spell that. P-R-O. P-R-O-C-E-P-T-I-V. And that has to do with motion and movement. Um, so this is something as basic as writing, using tools. These are the kids that, you know, break pencils all the time because they're using so much heavy pressure as they're moving their hands. Um, there may be the crashers. They're, they like to swing a lot. There's a lot of motion and movement that they, um, if they, if they like it, if they're seeking it, or they're very fearful of it. Um, these are children who tend to avoid heights, avoid climbing on play equipment, avoid roller coasters, those kinds of things, because they really, they don't feel comfortable with their body um, and, and movement. So they are hesitant about it. And then the last domain and, and 
if you talk to an OT who understands this, it's a lot more complex than what I'm explaining. But these are the main things that I look at as a psychologist working with kids and helping parents. Um, I try to keep it as basic as possible. So the last area, which I'm sure everybody figured out, is visual. That's that's the other sense that um, that we get uh, feedback from most of our feedback from and you know related to seeing and the interesting thing with the visual uh, system is it's integrated with the vestibular and the proprioceptive and the tactile system so it's what you see what you feel what you touch um, that has a lot to do with how we're going to process information because you're not just sitting all the time and just not moving and watching things um, but these children have difficulty with sports you may see difficulty with reading and writing because as they're looking at things, the brain is not processing it accurately. Um, some of these children get diagnosed with dyslexia because they have it affects their learning. Um, they have difficulty copying from the board in class. If there's a lot of visual stimulation, if there's you know posters on the board and a, you know a huge screen where the teacher's putting up a lot of information or even at home. Uh, these are the children at home that the parents complain when they tell them, go, go clean the room. They're paralyzed because they're getting so much visual information from a cluttered room that they don't even know where to start. Um, and uh, the other thing is that fluorescent lights, which every classroom has in the United States can be a huge trigger for these kids. Um, I've had uh, the office I was in before had fluorescent lights and I've literally turned them off when I'm aware and, and turned on the incandescent lights when I'm aware that a child has visual sensitivity. And I've literally seen a, a teenager just complete, who was very stressed out and almost you know irritable and angry relax when I turned off the fluorescent lights. And nobody had known why she was having such a hard time in school for years. And she was already in high school by the time I saw her. So these little things can make a huge difference. Then you've got the kids that are seekers that are constantly looking for, you know, visual things. They like to, you know, play on computers a lot. They like to uh, play with Legos and things that give them a lot of visual input as well as tactile input. So those are the, you know, the, the, the five main domains. And so I, I ask questions uh, from parents about how do their children behave in certain situations to kind of dig up some of these things. And usually they will identify things from the beginning of they're sensitive to this or they, you know, are rough when they play or things like, and then I start asking questions that seem to tie into sensory processing. So as you're talking about this, one of the things that, that I noticed and that jumped out to me, a whole lot of overlap with different disorders there. Yes. You know, as you mentioned that there's a lot there that jumps out is like, okay, I, you know, as a, as a clinician, who's not a testing psychologist, I could see myself being like, oh, okay, we're looking at ADHD or like, oh, that's probably autism spectrum disorder. And, and that it also gets into the nitty gritty of why it's really important to have appropriate clinical eyes on situations like that. So that we're not, uh, diagnosing, um, inappropriately that we're not, uh, you know, relying on whatever our particular background is in instead of referring for a more in-depth neuropsychological assessment. Um, how do you discern the differences between kind of classic ADHD and some of these symptoms you're talking about, the, the sensory seekers, um, and same goes for autism spectrum disorder, you know, thinking of the the child that wants to wear certain clothing. And we know that that's a hallmark with autism spectrum, you know, that it's like, I want to wear comfy clothes and I don't like the way that this feels, um, or not really wanting to be touched. Like, how do you clinically start drawing those lines and go, okay, wait, like these pieces don't add up. I need to be considering sensory processing. Right. That, I mean, that's a great question. And I think that's what kind of what we're talking about today is most of the referrals that I receive, I'd say the vast majority of them are to test a child for ADHD. Very common. And I'm sure a lot of clinicians see that as well. My child can't focus. My child's impulsive. My child's hyper. The teacher's complaining. Um, and I've found that about 40 to 60% of these kids that I see, that's a pretty high percentage, they come into me oftentimes already diagnosed with ADHD, typically by a pediatrician. Some of these kids have also even been put on medication and they're not showing any improvement. So I've just made standard practice when I do a psychological evaluation, if ADHD is even a referral question, I look for sensory processing as well. And I find that some kids actually have both of them. I mean, they're both brain-based conditions. 
you know, it has to do with neurodevelopment. Um, and, but I've also seen so many students that were, as you said, misdiagnosed with ADHD, anxiety, bipolar disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, um, because what we see on the surface, whether they're, you know, four or six or 12 or eight or, you know, 16, and we're working with them is if they have a sensory, an underlying sensory processing disorder, the behavior that's being manifested is how they're trying to cope with it. And when you understand the underlying root of what is contributing to this reactivity that you're seeing in the behavior and treat that piece, then you see a big improvement in their behavior. Um, and, and they're functioning. I mean, I've worked with children who were diagnosed many years ago with anxiety and they've been in therapy with multiple therapists and they're still highly anxious. And so to answer your question, um, there are ways to discern. So let me talk a little bit about some of, give some examples, I think, you know, kind of some clinical examples uh, to better illustrate how we can kind of make this dis discern between the, the SPD sensory processing disorder and um, mental health conditions. So gosh, I'd say about 15, 18 years ago, I had a little boy come into my office. He was only four years old. And at that point, he was so hyperactive. His parents didn't know what to do with him. They had taken him at age two to a psychiatrist because they were just beside themselves. Um, and that psychiatrist had prescribed an atypical antipsychotic to calm this child down. Thank goodness the parents researched what the med was and didn't give it to him. So they come into my office and he is the Energizer Bunny immediately. And it was clear, you know, his behavior was very difficult to manage. And they tried to put him in preschool. He couldn't sit still and see circle time. Um, but what I saw with him is, and I allowed him to do this because I wanted to observe the behavior because the parents were trying to get him to calm down, is he started running in my office and he would run from one side to the other to where the door was and he would slam his hands into the door and then he'd run back and he'd do it again and he kept doing that over and over again and it was clear to me this is not a hyper kid he had a purpose to his behavior he was trying to get input he was trying to get deep pressure on his hands by doing that behavior over and over when i talked to his parents we got him into um, some occupational therapy and started dealing with some of the sensory seeking behaviors that he was exhibiting that looked on the surface like severe ADHD. And more, more than one person had recommended to these parents that they medicate this four-year-old, the child totally transformed. He calmed down because his sensory needs are getting met. Um, another thing, I mean, we're talking mostly about adults and teens right now, but even with, with excuse me, children and teens right now, but even with adults, we see this. Um, back in about 2006, I had an opportunity to do a seminar uh, for the Caneo Valley Mental Health Professionals Association. And I'd been talking to some of my colleagues about the sensory processing stuff, and they were really interested, so we'd like to learn more about it. And as I was describing this, as I'm sharing with you, Afterwards, a couple of therapists came up to me and said, you know, I've had these adult clients that I've worked with um, and yeah, they can't, they, they have difficulty in relationships. They don't like to be touched. They seem to be, you know, very particular about their clothes and things like that. And, you know, they seem to have intimacy issues, which contributes to their difficulty keeping a relationship. And they said, well, maybe it's a sensory processing disorder that they have. And not intimacy or not, you know, OCD or not something else that's impacting their ability to have a relationship. And so it, it can manifest in different ways, even in adults. Um, what I see the most of is these kids that come in with irritable mood, frequent, I mean, multiple times a day, temper tantrums, overreaction to common situations. These are the kids that it's like, you know, there's only Rice Krispies left as far as cereal and they really wanted Apple Jacks. So mom gives them Rice Krispies and they have a complete meltdown. It's a clear overreaction to the situation. Um, they can also be aggressive with people, you know, breaking things, hurting siblings. Um, these kids sometimes get diagnosed with, often get diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder because they tend to be very noncompliant because they're tantruming and irritable all the time or disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, which is kind of the early signs of bipolar. And I've actually worked with kids as young as eight who've been diagnosed with bipolar. 
um, because they have this inability to regulate their their emotions and their behavior. Um, so there's you know another example of potential misdiagnosis. Uh, learning, as he talked about with the visual um, processing, it affects reading, writing, math. It really impacts a child's ability to function in a classroom setting. Um, and if they're overwhelmed at school, um, they don't want to go to school. They want to be homeschooled. Um, many are not saying that now, but <laughs> um, these kids can get diagnosed with a learning disability or dyslexia. And they may have that learning disability. I'm not saying that it precludes that, but oftentimes if there's visual or tactile or proprioceptive um, sensory processing problems going on, it's going to come out in the classroom. And um, so that's a lot of it. And then, of course, the anxiety. Um, these are the kids that run out of the classroom, these kids that hide under the desk when they're overstimulated. Uh, they may complain of, of fears, again, not wanting to go to school. They get diagnosed with separation anxiety um, or phobias, and when in fact the root is they're overstimulated in, the, in their classroom environment. Um, what I find is a lot of kids who have milder forms of um, sensory processing problems, when they get to middle school, everything hits it really gets manifested. And the reason is because many public and even some private school middle schools are large, large, noisy, smelly. There's way too much going on. Kids are bumping into each other. Um, they have to navigate a larger campus than in their elementary school. And I see a number of kids in sixth and seventh grade who don't wanna go to school, who are begging to be homeschooled because they cannot tolerate this, the over the sensory overload that they get in the middle school environment. And the referral I usually get for these kids is anxiety. You know, there were school refusal and anxiety, and they can't be in these environments. And when we figure out and identify that it's actually, the root of it is actually sensory processing and put in place for the child or, you know, the teenager, um, accommodations and different strategies in the school environment so they don't get overstimulated so often, they can go to school and they can function a lot better. Um, and the thing with SPD is 99% of the time anxiety goes with it. And part of that is because if you're in, if you're walking through the world on a daily basis and you don't know if it's gonna to be too loud or not loud enough, if you don't know if it's gonna to be too bright or um, what you're eating doesn't taste right, or you're feeling like you're gonna fall, you're gonna be anxious. That is such an unpredictable way to live. And so, and, and what happens oftentimes is when children get overstimulated, when they have sensory processing issues, their anxiety spikes. So we see this interplay. Um, and even when some, some things are better, situations come up where, you know, and it doesn't even have to be a negative thing. It can be a fun thing, like going to an amusement park or going to a big party and they're enjoying themselves, but then they get overstimulated and they see the behaviors and the anxiety afterwards. So much of what you've described, again, you know, this overlap with other conditions, when, when working with a child who has autism spectrum disorder, and they have these same symptoms, can autism occur alongside a sensory processing disorder? Or is it all attributed to autism spectrum disorder? Does that make sense? So would you diagnose two separate things? Or would you just diagnose um, autism because it encapsulates a lot of those sensory processing well, issues. Well, actually, for diagnosis of autism, one of the criteria is sensory processing problems. But many of the children that I've seen are not on the autism spectrum, but do have these sensory processing challenges. And so, um, I, as I said, the, the first child, that 12-year-old I saw many, many years ago, I thought she had to have autism and I was assessing as much as I could, but there was no evidence of autism. She didn't have the social deficits. She didn't have the communication deficits. She only had this sensory processing problem. And as I said, I see kids with ADHD who the data suggests that they have both the sensory as well as the ADHD. And so we're gonna treat each component differently and work together to be able to meet that child's needs. Um, Oftentimes, I, I get kids that it's not 100% clear if it's ADHD or not, because there's enough symptoms of ADHD that can't be fully accounted for by the sensory. And so what I recommend to the parents is let's start by, by treating the sensory processing problem. And I give them a lot of strategies to do that, which if we have time, I'll get into some specific things that 
therapists can use with their clients. Um, and then I tell the parents, if you do A, B, and C to treat the sensory, both at home and, and with some professional help, and things get better and the child focuses better and things things have to be changed at the school as well because they need that input at school, um, then that's where the problem is. If the sensory behaviors or the, the, the behaviors that are being manifested by the sensory processing problem are treated and those improve, but the child still has difficulty with school and focusing and impulse control, then we're probably dealing with either primarily ADHD or a combination of the two. Um, we're oftentimes you know, especially if a pediatrician and neurologist sees the child and their symptoms of ADHD, the first course of treatment is medication. And this is not treated by medication. So let's talk about that. So when you have a child with sensory processing disorder, um, it sounds like you've had many cases where it's been misdiagnosed. And so they're being medicated for something that is not probable to be effective because it's a wrong diagnosis. So it's a wrong condition that they're treating. So as you just said, it, it's not something that medication would help. What are the primary interventions when we're looking at the treatment for sensory processing disorder? Okay. So let me backtrack a second, because before we look at treatment, I think we need to better identify what is going on uh, and whether it is a sensory processing problem. So um, I think the first thing, and this is what I always do in, with my assessments, and I, I know most good clinicians do as well, is take a good developmental history during the intake. When you're working with children, working with teens, it's, it's really important to go back and find out what were they like as babies? What was their temperament like? What were their developmental milestones like? When were the parents first concerned? Um, and, um, you know, I did a podcast last year for Clearly Clinical, uh, the, you know, the, the topic was identifying typical and atypical early childhood development and the impact on mental health of those. It was episode 71. So if people want to learn a little bit more about that, they can check out, you know, Clearly Clinical's um, episode 71 about that that I did. But the key thing is collaboration across disciplines. And when I have a child, I technically cannot diagnose Actually, there is no diagnosis, official diagnosis of a sensory processing disorder, which is interesting. Um, back in 2007, so it's been a long time, Time Magazine published an article about sensory processing disorder. And actually, the, the title of the article is This Disorder for Real. And in that article in Time Magazine, they talked about how there are were groups of occupational therapists and psychologists working together, and I think if I recall, this was many years ago, they were, a few of them were, were based in Minnesota, and they were trying very, very hard to get the American Psychiatric Associations, the ones who published the DSM, to include sensory processing disorder as a true diagnosis, as a separate diagnosis, so that way it could get treated and insurance companies would cover it. And so there has been for many, many years, you know, almost 20 years, well, 15, 20 years now, this movement to try and get this recognized by those, by the occupational therapist and the mental health clinicians who work with these kids and these teenagers. But when DSM-5 was published in 2013, the diagnosis was not put in there. So it technically is not even a true diagnosis in the sense of that. An occupational therapist can work with a child who has this, and there are um, some medical diagnoses related to motor control and things like that that they can use to warrant the insurance companies to pay for it. And so they typically use that. So that was going to be my question. So from a coding perspective, when we're looking at like what uh, diagnosis code you'd be looking at, mm -hmm. are you then looking at like developmental disorder, not otherwise specified or, or what is it that you would be writing down? Oftentimes these kids, as I said earlier, manifest a great deal of anxiety. Okay. So from a mental health perspective, if you're using a diagnostic code, then anxiety is, is typically there. These kids also at times have significant um, oppositional behaviors. So if they're young, um, oppositional defiant disorder is another diagnosis that can be given uh, from the mental health perspective. But as I said, it's that collaboration. So when I suspect that a child, based on the history that I'm getting from that very thorough you know, <laughs> history, um, developmental history that I'm taking in the early sessions, uh, I, want, I refer the family to an occupational therapist to get further testing because they're the ones who actually, one, can really diagnose and identify it accurately and two, uh, can treat it. 
um, in the clinical in the clinic setting. And the treatment is very different when you're talking about a young child versus a teenager, and we'll get to that. Um, but the cross-discipline is important. Um, also, some teenagers who have severe anxiety um, can benefit from medication for that anxiety to decrease it. Uh, so referral to a psychiatrist can be helpful in those situations. But again, as I said, you, medication does not treat SPD, but it can treat the concomitant anxiety that comes with it that a lot of these um, individuals experience, um, even the adults. Um, and so the combination with the occupational therapy and the psychotherapy that the, that the mental health clinicians can provide, and a lot of this is parent education when you're talking about you know, school-aged children, even, even middle school-aged children, uh, that can be really effective. Um, and I can go into kind of more details, if you like, about how I, uh, how I approach it. Well, and I'm curious, like, how do you bring all of these different professionals together and then create complementary treatment plans um, to to support it when you're coming at it from different angles? That's that's that was one of the things that I was thinking of, mm-hmm. because at least for me, as a licensed marriage and family therapist, you say occupational therapy. And I'm like, I don't really know what happens with occupational therapy. Sure. <laughs> So Great question. full disclosure, like, so it's like, okay, what, what, what is that? And then how do I support it on my level to make sure that what I'm doing is not either duplicative or undoing what someone else is, is working on? Excellent. So we're talking about children. An occupational therapist is someone who's trained and, and, and there's an important distinction I want to point out is there are two kind of subfields of occupational therapy. One is individuals, um, and they all have master's degrees at least, who learn to work with children in a clinic setting. Many of those are trained in sensory processing disorders. Then you have this other subset of occupational therapists who train to work in a school setting. Most of them are not trained in SPD. And that's actually been my exposure. When I've worked with occupational therapists before, it has been in a school setting. Um, so please tell me about the other side. Right. So, and, and it's not that they're uneducated, it's just their training is different because individuals who choose to train and work in a school environment as an occupational therapist, they work with children who have motor skills issues like handwriting problems and cutting and um, those different things that are necessary to be successful in a school setting. Uh, Coordination of, you know, just a lot of coordination, motor coordination problems, I guess is the best way to describe it, where a clinic-based OT Um, They learn that as well, but a lot of their training is how to get a child to do daily functioning things. Like, for example, button their shirt, um, feed themselves, um, and and when they get, when they're overwhelmed by environmental stimulation, how to learn to calm themselves through that. And a lot of it is what we would describe in the therapy world as exposure, Another, when you've got a child who's, who's defensive, giving them gradual exposure to certain things that they don't tolerate, like, for example, uh, Play-Doh or, you know, something sticky or slimy, and they're tactically defensive about that, giving gradual exposure to that literally rewires the brain to the level of where they can tolerate it. And then you have the, the seekers, the, the children who are constantly in motion and look severely high, you know, ADHD their activities that they do with them with swinging and bouncing and uh, take a, you know, a box of sand or, or rice and let them put their fingers through it to give themselves tactile input. So those are kind of some of the strategies they do in the clinic. And then they also ideally work with the parents and giving them what they call home programs of activities that they can do at home. Now, as clinicians, what I typically do, and I, and I, with my schedule, I don't have time for therapy. So I try and do a lot of parent education as part of my assessments. So the key thing I do with parents when we've clearly identified that we've got sensory processing issues going on is I try and help them understand the child's perspective, that the child is just not being stubborn and acting like a brat because they didn't want that cereal. There was other things going on. You know, their little brother was crying and wouldn't stop and that was triggering them or, um, you know, whatever the mother cooked the night before, the smell was still in the kitchen and it was bothering them. Um, and that was what kind of set off the, the tantrum having to do with the Rice Krispies um, or whatever cereal I mentioned earlier. Um, and <laughs> I don't remember. Um, and helping the parent understand this is why your child's acting this way. And what can you do to help your child better regulate? 
A lot of it is identifying the triggers. What do you notice sets your child off? Loud noises, certain smells, um, feeling like they're going to fall, clothing. And if they can schedule certain times of day, what we call, what occupational therapists and I call um, a sensory diet to be able to address what they're dealing with to help them regulate better, then we see the behaviors improve significantly. Um, that's that's really interesting to me. So what would a sensory diet look like? So if you have, I mean, is that like working with a school system to try to arrange a 15-minute window every couple hours? Like what does that actually look like and what's done during that time? This, this is very interesting yeah, to me. Right. So let me talk a little bit about the home situation, and then we'll get to the school situation, because that's that's a lot of what it is with that, as I said, the collaboration. So if you've got an occupational therapist working with the child directly, uh, you've got either the OT or a mental health professional working with the family and then collaborating with the school, then we're addressing all the levels that the child needs for treatment. So let me give you a few examples. Um, there was one child that I had many years ago um, that I saw, a little girl, and she was well-behaved in school. Um, she was probably second grade. And then she went to daycare after school. Very common, you know, before we had the pandemic that children would go to school and then go to daycare when their parents work full time. But every single day when the dad would wake, would pick her up from the daycare, the after school care, um, she would have a meltdown in the car and she would just start tantruming and crying in the car. And what we discovered was she was getting so overstimulated in the classroom and in the daycare yeah. and trying her best to hold it together because she didn't want to get in trouble and she wanted everybody to think that she was a good girl, that she couldn't handle it anymore. And so she would break down every night. And so you can imagine that what the rest of the evening was like for these parents, homework time, dinner time, bedtime, it was total chaos every day. So in this particular situation, what we talked about is we discovered that one of the things that was soothing for this, this little girl was swinging. And so they worked it out where dad would pick her up from the daycare and on the way home, it was a very short drive, there was a park. So every day for about 10 minutes, they would stop at the park and she would swing. And she was able to calm herself down, self-regulate a little bit and go home. And the rest of the evening was much calmer, not every day, but it improved a lot. Just that one strategy. As you're talking about it, it reminds me a lot of the interview that I did with Patricia Young, where we were talking about sensory processing sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And I know having read um, The Highly Sensitive Child by Elaine Aaron, she talks a lot about that, that you have these kids that are not, they're not disordered, so to speak. Like these are kids that just have high sensitivity um, and adults for that matter, but that, that uh, the importance of finding a time to down-regulate when they've been on show, basically, all day at school, all day at daycare, at work, whatever it is, and needing to bring it back down and the kind of meltdowns that can occur when that doesn't, when that's not allowed, mm -hmm. when you have to quickly transition. Um, so as you're talking about it, I'm, I'm absolutely seeing this overlap yes. and wondering how, how much is this the more extreme clinical manifestation of these the building block phenomenon of sensory uh, processing sensitivity than when it's turned up because of genetics or trauma or whatever it is that it then goes into into something that appears disordered and certainly like so many things that are part of the human experience we all get sad that doesn't mean we have depression exactly um, and and that that idea of like these are fundamental parts of what it means to be human. We're all sensitive to feelings, mm -hmm. um, but when does that become clinically significant and quote unquote disordered? Exactly. Um, so please, it's, it's everything you're saying is is very interesting to me in, in conceptualizing how as a therapist then I could work with a family or work with a child to be um, more. Uh, supportive of occupational therapy or of testing. And 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 to our listeners, I don't really work much with children. So for me, I'm like, oh, what is this magic? Um, <laughs> this is just not what I do that much. I work a lot more with young adults. So for me, I, I'm particularly um, under-informed when it comes to interventions with younger children. Well, I, I'm going to touch on some of the sensory diets, but then I do have some information about working with young adults and teens. So we'll get to that real soon. So there are a number of things. Um, as I said, you know, various things that you could do, a parent could do at home, the clinician can help them with. Um, let me give you some examples of the kids that tend to be really the sensory seekers, because those are the ones that tend to be the most disruptive. Uh, oftentimes with the defensive kids, if you let them go in a, in a quiet, dark room for a while, 
they can usually regroup better. But the kids are constantly seeking that input of moving and jumping and, and, you know, doing tumbles and running into walls and grabbing people. They're highly disruptive and uh, cause cause a lot more um, problems for themselves and their families than, than some of these other children. So, as I said, swinging an opportunity to bounce on a trampoline. Now, oftentimes, most families don't have the space for a full trampoline, and it's not always safe. So there are these little mini trampolines with the bar that are made for exercising. So some families have gotten those. They don't take very much space. Uh, swimming is a very great activity for these kids to help them re- help them regulate. Uh, deep pressure. Um, you can get a yoga ball. Yoga ball has wonderful um, uh, use, uses. Um, a child who likes deep pressure on their back or their stomach can lay on the yoga ball and get that. Uh, being able to bounce on a yoga ball with a base so they're not going to fall over and, and really injure themselves, those little plastic bases. Some of them actually come with legs, I saw some recently. And if they do that while they're doing homework or even sitting at the dinner table, um, they tend to calm down. They're not as hyper because they're getting the input that they need. They can bounce for a little bit and stop. Um, tactile toys. There are a number of things that you can get online. Um, even Target sells them. I have this little toy that um, it has plastic. Many years ago, they made them with metal with little pins and you could put your hand in there and it would shape to whatever your hand was or whatever object. Um, and those things, I call them a tactile toy. Kids who need to touch things um, tend to respond well with that. Now, in a classroom setting, there are different things that they can use. And this is the, that collaboration of first identifying that your child is not, my child is not falling out of his chair because he's so hyperactive. He's falling out of his chair because he needs a sensory input and he can't get comfortable in his chair. So there are things that are called, there's a thing called um, a sit and move cushion, a sit and move cushion that you can buy online. um, And you put it in the child's chair and literally it gives them that feedback. So when they move around, it it calms them. Uh, And it's much more comfortable for them than sitting in a plastic chair in school. Uh, some people, some occupational therapists who are, are educated in this and, and work well in the, with teachers in the classroom, they'll put a Velcro, Velcro strip on the child's desk and they can touch it when they want the tactile input instead of grabbing, you know, another child or, or something they're not supposed to be getting at. Uh, there's another thing called a TheraBand. And some of this stuff is exercise equipment that we're used to, like the yoga ball and stuff. And they put that on the, on the chair legs and the child can put their feet in it and just move their legs a little bit. And instead of bouncing all over the place and getting out of their seat 15 times a day and disrupting the class, the TheraBand helps them, um, relax, um, and then, um, so there are a number of different things that, you know, strategies, but a lot of it, as I said, is identifying what the triggers are and then being able to find activities that could meet those particular needs of the child, either if they're overstimulated or understimulated. But working with teens and adults, um, that's a completely different ballpark, but that's really, really important. I'm seeing a lot of teenagers, as I said, high school students. Um, I had a, rec- a one come into my office recently, a few months ago before this whole thing, uh, before the whole pandemic started. And she had severe anxiety where she had, she literally had to leave her classroom several times a day. Um, and she was in a special ed program. So she was in a smaller classroom to start with. And we were talking about her anxiety and some of the things that triggered her anxiety. And she was hyper, hypersensitive to noise and certain visual input. And she gave me multiple examples of things that happened in her classroom that all the other kids were able to ignore, but they, it would trigger her to where she literally could not, she was having panic attacks because of these triggers. And as we were talking about it, she said to me, and her mother was in the room for this interview. She said to me, see mom, it's not just anxiety. I've been telling you this. And then she said, finally, somebody gets it. I want to cry. So she felt heard for the first time that somebody was not just saying, oh, you have anxiety or you should be on medication for anxiety or, you know, aren't you in therapy for your anxiety, which she was, but it wasn't working because the core root, as I said earlier, is the sensory processing problem. So when you're talking about teenagers and young adults the um, or even older adults, the key things are first identify the sensory systems that, that are challenging for them, that they're affected teach them to identify what those triggers are. And 
if they're living, you know, with their family, even if they have a spouse, if they've got a, you know, a roommate, ask, be okay to ask for help from those people. Like, could you turn the stereo down a little bit? I'm feeling a little overwhelmed right now. Or, you know, please don't cook that liver or whatever it is that they're cooking for dinner because that smell is really bothering me right now. Um, and so giving them permission to not just have to deal with it, but to ask for help and to ask you know, others to be able to be sensitive to what their needs are. Um, the other treatment, which a lot of clinicians do, is systematic desensitization or exposure therapy. But the critical piece is when you're talking about somebody like this, especially if they have other conditions like anxiety, depression, um, things like that going on, the exposure therapy needs to be on their terms. It's got to be very slow and only gradual to where they're able to tell you, now I can tolerate this situation better rather than, okay, we need to move to the next stage. We need to move to the next stage. We need to, you know, it's, it's, it's different than your traditional treatment for anxiety. That's the exposure therapy. And that's important to understand. Um, but I've seen it even with, you know, older teens and young adults with the right type of treatment with the combination of identifying their triggers, giving their giving them strategies to cope, um, and also um, this type of treatment with the exposure and the desensitization is even as late as teenage years or young adult years, there is the possibility of brain rewiring. We, we're, most of us have known about neurotrans neuroplasticity, and it's very, very common in young children, but it can go throughout the lifespan. Um, I had one student who I worked with, um, uh, she had severe anxiety, couldn't go to school on a regular basis. We identified the sensory processing problems and I got her connected with a very good OT who worked with teenagers and young adults. And this person taught her how to identify the triggers and what the, the strategies were to deal with them when she got overwhelmed by the sensory input. Um, and she went off to college, went, out, went to one of the top colleges in the country. She was a very smart young woman. And the first month, she almost didn't make it. She almost came home and dropped out. But she had the support of this OT through text messages and phone calls. And after that first month, when she developed the strategies of when she's in a big lecture hall and it's echoing and the sense that her no the noise was too much for her to handle, she was able to leave the room, go to another place, calm down and return to the lecture hall and different strategies like that. She was able to stay at school, live in the dorm and eventually graduated from college successfully. Got it. Thank you for breaking down kind of examples of not only how this could be treated in children, but also in adolescents and young adults, knowing that, um, you know, even my experience, that a lot of these things might, um, they're not necessarily under the radar, but no one called them what they were when they were children. And so then they're they're showing up in young adults, even in adults, and going, uh oh, like there's something here that we can do something with. And that's that's been more my exposure to, to using occupational therapists. Um, Dr. Torcato, I could keep asking you questions on this topic. I have a feeling we have another podcast that we'll do down the road because there's just so much to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, so for our listeners that want to learn more about what you're discussing, are there any particular books or resources that you recommend? Um, what's your website? How can people get in touch with you? Okay. There's a number of books out there. Um, uh, there's an occupational therapist by the name of Kranowitz, K-R-A-N-O-W-I-T-Z. Um, and she's written a series of books about this topic, The Out-of-Sync Child. She's done another one called The Out-of-Sync Child Has Fun, which is Interventions for Parents. And she's more recently, about two years ago, published a third book called The Out-of-Sync Child Grows Up. And that's specifically for teenagers and young adults. Again, a lot of sensory strategies. I recommend these books over and over again to, to parents of children and teens because they're they're very user user friendly and um, very useful. Um, and the nice thing about her books is you don't have to read the whole book to get anything out of it. You can go to the specific section that the child or the teen is having the issues with, and then the strategies are listed there. So it's it's very um, very easy to use. Sorry, um, my website is www.drshirosyke, spelled D-R-S-H-I-R-O-P-S-Y-C-H.com. Or if anyone has questions and they'd like to email me, um, they're welcome to email me at info at 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Shiro. This this has been a, a whole lot of information, but in a very digestible hour. So thank you for kind of breaking this down and what we should be looking for and then kind of what to do when we see it, who we need to refer to. And it sounds like one of the big takeaways is the importance of working collaboratively with folks like you. Um, that when, like me as a therapist, I don't I don't know about this testing stuff. <laughs> um, I do, but not like you do. Um, so thank you for for coming and, and sharing your expertise on this topic. It's, it's been enlightening. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.